Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So today I am delighted to bring you an episode that I recorded with Michelle Lyons. Now, if you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you should remember her if you don't already know her. She's a women's health physiotherapist. She was on the podcast in July 2017, so two years ago, talking about endometriosis and the role that physiotherapists can play. And I have asked her to come back so that we can talk about menopause and perimenopause. We've discussed it a couple times on the podcast. Dr. Jackie Forsyth was here in February 2019 discussing hormones, exercise, and bone health. Um, But we really didn't discuss enough about what it is, what are the symptoms, what kind of pelvic floor symptoms might be present during this time. Is it a cliff that you fall off of? What are the kind of things that we can do? Michelle Lyons loves to talk about poo. Um, So I have asked her to come back on because she is just a beautiful human being with so much knowledge inside and is always extremely happy to share. If you have listened to last week's episode or just the previous episode with Jenny Burrell, she mentioned Michelle Lyons because they do some work together with the um, online business mentorship, but they also have a course called the Third Age Woman, which is part of Burl Education. So I'll put the links in the show notes that you can see. Um, But they have 12 modules within Third Age Woman that discuss hormones, building resilience, the essentials of hormone testing and hormone therapy, positive lifestyle shifts for Third Age, metabolic syndrome, fitness movement formula, pelvic health, optimal nutrition using food as medicine, musculoskeletal health, brain health, heart health, and breast health, um, plus some extra um, information in there. So I'll put a link so that you can check that out. That course is for fitness professionals and other medical professionals, physiotherapists, anybody who's working with women over the age of 35. Um, So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed it because I am now 41 and as much as I sometimes think I'm still 25, I do realize um, that I am older and I think I have almost ignored thinking about menopause and perimenopause except for my patients and not for myself. Um, Not that I'm in denial that I'm aging, but you know, you just sometimes you blink and you go, oh yeah, I am older and I am approaching that stage and oh, I'm noticing some changes. So um, it's a really great episode. I hope that everybody enjoys it. Many patients have tweeted or emailed me and said, you don't have enough on menopause or older women. And I'm like, you are right. I need to have more on not just how physios can help in menopause, but just information on menopause in general. You know, it's not talked about enough. It's not researched enough. Um, 
Yeah. And so then I, when I was looking into who I could have and you were helping me look into who I could have. And in the end, I went, now forget it. I'm just having Michelle back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I'm um, honored. You run a course on this too, don't you? Because I did your course. You did the original one, I think, a couple yes. of years ago. Yeah. Many yeah, years ago. Yeah. So we completely redid it and expanded it, uh, Jenny and myself, um, earlier this year. So there's whole sections in there now about heart health and brain health. But ultimately, I think, you know, what it boils down to is two things. First of all, that constipation really is the answer to everything um, in terms of hormone balance and gut health and mental health. And then just that movement is non-negotiable you know, at this life stage for, for whatever aspect of menopausal health that we're talking about, whether it's heart health or mental health or brain or bones or, you know, uh, musculoskeletal avoiding sarcopenia. But also it's not just about little old ladies. Like we have to have considerations around the, the menopausal athlete, you know, and particularly things like gluteal tendinopathies, you know, and Alison Grimaldi's research on that. But um, how a lot of plantar fasciitis crops up at midlife as well or or is it really posterior tibial tendons um because of course estrogen is going to feed into all of that too and we see those things spike in women at 50 and there's a whole there's a a, a series in there as well about the menopausal the 50 year old shoulder and how we see a spike in biceps and rotator cuff tendinopathies in 50 year old women so it's it's not just about hormones and GSM that there are all these ripples but all of the evidence points to exercise really being this kind of panacea for a lot of what goes on at menopause exercise and I would say yeah obviously avoiding constipation but topical estrogen rather than oral estrogen really seems to be beneficial so yeah wow okay well what if we kind of start by talking about hormones and what is I guess what's considered to be menopause, but in what if we even back it up further to include perimenopause? Because, you know, yeah. from a young age, I think I was taught that menopause happens to women when they're about 50. They just kind of are walking down the street and they fall off a cliff and they're in menopause. <laughs> and they're never seen again. <laughs> and they're never seen yeah. again. <laughs> so yeah. what is happening and when does this start? Okay, so menopause, essentially, all menopause means is that it's been 12 months since you've had a period. So literally, menopause lasts a split second, and then you move into postmenopause. For a lot of women, I think a lot of the, the, the troublesome signs and symptoms that we associate mm. with menopause are actually happening in perimenopause, yeah. which can be like this decade leading up to, um, to menopause, that split second. So if the average age of menopause around the world, so there's some biological connection there, the average age of menopause around the world is 51. So really we're talking about, you know, kind of those 10 or 15 years. So from our mid thirties onwards, we might start to notice changes with periods. We definitely know there's changes in terms of our bone health from our mid thirties on, depending on your previous history. Were you an elite athlete? Were you an over-exerciser, an under-exerciser? But for most women, I think it's changes with their periods, maybe some kind of, you know, mild hot flashes. Maybe your sleep starts getting a little bit erratic. Um, and that's just that kind of roller coaster, that kind of your estrogen levels and your progesterone levels are, are trying to balance each other out. So it depends very much on 
how you're eating, what you're eating, how you're sleeping, how you're managing your stress, and of course, how you're pooping, uh, which is absolutely vital when it comes to hormone balance. How do you know if it's happening if you don't notice changes in your periods because you have an IUD like the Marina? Because a lot of women have that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, for lots of women, I, mean, I think we just have to acknowledge the the biological realities that, you know, most women, you know, almost all women are going to be menopausal by the time they're they're 51. So although things like, you know, oral contraceptives and Mirena calls, you know, can kind of mask a lot of maybe the overt symptoms, you are going to have some breakthrough issues. But I think just acknowledging the reality that once you're in your mid 30s, the stuff that you could get away with in your 20s doesn't fly anymore, you know, and we have to start, you know, really embracing better choices like movement is just non-negotiable, making good food choices, your metabolism starts to change a little bit as well. You might start to notice that you're putting on a little bit of weight around the center of your body. And so getting a little bit more of a tummy, even though nothing else has changed. And I think just understanding that if you can stay ahead of the game and be proactive in your lifestyle choices, you're just going to have an easier transition um, through menopause and also like into old age, because it, it is about the quality of life, not just the quantity of life that we have left as well. So I think for women, we're seeing some really good advances in terms of acknowledging that women are not small men and that there are gender specific issues as you know, when it comes to aging. But I think as physios particularly, we're actually in a really good position um, as women's health physios particularly, because we can we can ask the questions, particularly around some of the pelvic health changes that can occur in perimenopause and remove barriers to exercise, really coming up with creative and hopefully bespoke tailored approaches to exercise that are going to target the challenges to heart health, brain health, uh, bone health, mental health. Um, and a lot of that does come back to being aware of your choices, being aware of the evidence that supports those choices, and then making it fun and enjoyable as well. So people actually will do it. They're not doing it to punish themselves, but they're doing it as as a means of prioritizing good self-care. So you mentioned that there's certain pelvic floor issues can increase during this period of time. Um, what kind of things are you talking about? So we, you know, we tend to see it referred to as GSM or genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Um, and estrogen, of course, like has about 400 different functions in the female body. But one of the jobs that it does is it plumps up a lot of the tissues in around the perineum. So it provides a lot of passive closure around the opening to the urethra um, and to the vagina as well. Um, in the form of vascular beds, particularly, it makes the makes the tissues, you know, kind of nice and juicy and firm. Also, is going to influence the production of lubrication to a degree as well. So, as our body adjusts to lower levels of estrogen, the tissues can get a little bit thinner around the urethra and the vagina, but also around the anus. The anus has loads of um, estrogen receptors. So what can happen is we might see the after effects of, of obstetric events that maybe happened 20 or 30 years ago. And while you have all this estrogen coursing through your veins, everything is fine. But when the estrogen levels start to decline a little bit and you lose some of those passive closure mechanisms, it's when we might start to see an increase in stress incontinence. We might start to have some sexual pain issues. 
we might start to have a little bit of anal leakage as well. And anal leakage affects one in five women over 40, according to some of the research out there. One in five women over 40, but we're not talking about it. So I think as pelvic health physios, we can ask the questions, we can ask very detailed and spe specific questions. We can reassure women that this is not just a part of getting older, that there are evidence-based strategies out there. And the, the evidence really supports, particularly for the aspects of GSM around urethral dysfunction and vaginal dysfunction, that a combination of topical hormone therapy, so topical estrogen in combination with pelvic rehab, the evidence suggests that that's actually a better approach than either by itself, but actually also that oral hormone therapy that you take by mouth is problematic because there are some papers suggesting that it's associated with new onset urinary and fecal incontinence. So local, topical, combined with pelvic rehab really just seems to be the gold standard as far as the research that's coming out. Now, can I just say that I am not averse to hormone therapy hmm. because if you are not sleeping if you are having like life disruptive hot flashes throughout the day um if your if your concerns are primarily pelvic health focused then i would go with topical estrogen if you're having those bigger systemic changes and symptoms then oral hormone therapy but i would always suggest that you take the lowest dose of hormones for the shortest period of time and you still have to do the work mm. to get your life back on track again it's not a band-aid and you can yeah. still go on chugging the the wine and you know and not managing your stress and not prioritizing all those other things as well it's a boat to get you to the other side because you know the the new research that came out a couple of weeks ago that had everybody up in arms that hormone therapy increases your risk of breast cancer if you stay on it for more than a year it does, but only by a tiny amount. And actually drinking alcohol increases your risk of breast cancer far more. Hmm. So we have to be very careful about selective headlines out there. Yeah. For some women, hormone therapy is a game changer in terms of regaining their quality of life. Hmm. But like I said, you put that on to stop the yeah. the cascade and then you do the work to, to build up from within. So again, you know, 12 months seems to be a fairly safe length of time for most women to take hormone therapy. But, um, you know, we go down a whole rabbit hole in terms of bioidentical versus synthetic at this point. And I'm assuming it's the same there, but if they want topical estrogen, they need a prescription for it from their medical practitioner. Yeah, so clear communication and having a good healthcare team that works together. Um, with the woman hopefully steering the ship, you know, she's in charge of her health care. But I think as colleagues, you know, if we're seeing signs of vaginal atrophy when we're doing a pelvic floor exam on our patients, to be able to, you know, to communicate both to the woman that we're working with, but also her, her GP or her gynae and say, you know, the tissues are just looking a little bit, a little bit dry, a little bit sensitive, maybe a little bit of atrophy down there you know, would you be comfortable with prescribing a little bit of topical estrogen as well? And again, the research really seems to be very supportive of that combined approach for topical estrogen, which is going to give you fairly minimal systemic absorption. Um, but combining that then with strategies like pelvic floor muscle training, um, 
building a better stool if we've got some anal incontinence issues, pressure management between breathing and pelvic floor coordination, making sure that we've got good glute strength and good upper body strength, that we're not breath holding inappropriately for, say, going from sit to stand. And that really is the, the gold standard as far as as the, you know, as far as I'm concerned, certainly, but as far as the research is also concerned, that we're looking at the whole person, that there is actually a woman attached to that vagina or urethra or anus. And we have to kind of take this big picture view with that um, to really help her, to quote over, live her best life. So what kind of questions should we be asking? So as pelvic floor, there's lots of different people who listen. And as pelvic floor physios, we may have a woman who comes to see us for urgency. Or, again, I find a lot of women who are showing signs of GSM, uh, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, right? Yep. Yeah, um, they'll come. A lot of women will be referred because they're having pain with intercourse. Um, but sure. so if you, a lot of the times it's it's one thing that they come in for. But what are all the questions that you should be asking these women? Absolutely. So that's that's a big a big field because obviously menopause is going to affect heart health, brain health, musculoskeletal health. Um, so really everything from from the top of your head literally to the, to the toes on your feet because estrogen is so widespread throughout your body, almost every cell in your body has has estrogen receptors. So if we're seeing somebody for a pelvic health appointment, I think one of the key things that we can do is do a good visual exam of the perineum. Um, get this woman's history, listen to her story, what's causing her the most bother. But then, you know, asking her questions as well, is she having any sexual discomfort? Because so many women think that leaking is just a normal part of getting older, think that pain with sex is a normal part of getting older. And just to be able to have conversations about the judicious use of, of lubricants, of vaginal moisturizers, um, of, of asking questions about constipation, because yes, with lower estrogen, the bladder does become less stretchy, you know, so increased frequency and urgency can be a feature of low estrogen, but constipation is also a huge driver of frequency and urgency. And we know that constipation can be driven by a relative estrogen dominance, um, both premenopausally and postmenopausally. So a lot of, I think, what we're going to see in terms of urinary dysfunction will be influenced by what's going on with the bowel. Doing good visual, checking for tissue integrity, having those conversations, are they using lube? I have found one of the most useful things when examining a woman's perimenopausal perineum is actually to get a magnifying glass with maybe with a little bit of an inbuilt light into it, because sometimes there can be micro trauma around the posterior fourchette where maybe she's having penetrative intercourse without sufficient uh, lubrication. And that's causing a little bit of micro trauma to the fourchette, which is causing the pelvic floor muscles to become unhappy, which means the brain starts anticipating pain with sex. So for me, it's all about taking a good history, doing good visual before you touch any of the structures around there, finding out, is she having any changes with her periods, any other signs and symptoms of hormonal fluctuations? How's her sleep? How are her stress levels? Um, is she having a regular bowel movement? Any changes in that department as well? So really looking at the whole woman, um, finding out what's changed for her lately, is she having any of those menopausal signs and symptoms? Reassuring her 
that um, we have we have solutions, we have strategies, you know, and most of the time they're usually fairly simple, straightforward strategies as well, particularly from a, a pelvic health perspective. Um, as we were saying earlier, you know, topical estrogen really can be very beneficial for the urethral and the vaginal symptoms that we talked about. Not so much with prolapse, unfortunately, but but certainly for those two aspects of GSM, I think that that combination approach. And as physios, I feel like we're in a really good position because we have time with our patients and we understand that interconnectedness of the, the whole body and the brain and the nervous system and how real life affects affects you at menopause. Um, so we've highlighted that there's a lot of pelvic floor issues around this yes. time. What about the physios or fitness professionals who are not doing pelvic floor or pelvic health um, specifically? What no. kind of people should they be concerned or considered considering asking further questions? Like what would they come into a musk physio for that might make them think, hey, I need to ask some questions because they may have issues they don't realize is related and they're not seeing anybody for and I should refer them on or they can help with a little bit more. Absolutely. So when I was uh, working in MSK in sports medicine, I was that physio who would say, you know, when you're doing your intake, any problems with your bowel or bladder? And I would literally have my fingers in the my ears saying, please say no, please say no, please say no. So we never have to talk about this again, you know. Um, and I think what we have to do, whether we are a physio working in musculoskeletal, whether you're a fitness professional, I think anybody Anytime you're working with a female client, you have to acknowledge that women are not small men, that women have a menstrual story to tell. And I think periods are still the last big taboo out there along with menopause. So asking a woman about her menstrual health, has she noticed any changes with her period? How, you know, how's her sleep will be another key indicator of any changes that are happening there as well. Any changes with with bowel or bladder, obviously, too. But for example, we know that issues like um, you've got a woman in her 50s coming in to see you with hip pain, what we used to call trochanteric bursitis um, and then lateral hip pain syndrome. We're now calling it a gluteal tendinopathy. But we know that this affects one in four women over the age of 50. It can be as painful and disabling as OA of the hip. So if we know that this is a high risk group for these strategies, we might want to also ask about other body systems that are being involved. Ultimately, yes, judicious exercise prescription, um, possibly along with some topical hormones, as we've talked about, lifestyle, eating well, moving well, prioritizing good sleep and stress management. Those are the big rocks of having a happy, healthy menopause. But if you're seeing somebody for hip pain, you know, it's important that you do kind of, you know, take that step back and look at the bigger picture of the woman that you're working with, because if someone's not sleeping well, how well are they really going to be uh, repairing during their sleep cycle? How motivated are they going to be to actually do the exercises that you're prescribing as well? So really trying to look at the whole person who's in front of us, acknowledging that if she's over 35, she is more than likely in that perimenopausal transition, but particularly for women in their 50s, you know, we see a spike in shoulder dysfunction, um, rotator cuff tendinopathies, 
plantar fasciitis, posterior tibial tendon issues, as well as the, the gluteal tendinopathies. So we know that estrogen has a role to play in type 1 collagen turnover, and that as we have less available estrogen, then these are going to be issues that can crop up. So even being a little bit preemptive with those strategies, how are our glutes working? How's her glute meet? How's her glute max? Particularly if she's embarking on a new training regime, you know, how are her, how's her rotator cuff generally? How's her foot mobility? And of course, you know, foot and ankle mobility, a quarter of the bones in your body are in your feet. So if your feet aren't happy, how happy are you going to be exercising anyway? So all of those ripples feed into it, but it's really important that we use everything that we have in our toolbox to keep women moving and exercising. We don't let pelvic health concerns become a barrier to exercise because in terms of uh, brain health and preventing cognitive decline and dementia, movement is vital, bone health, obviously, um, but also heart health, which is the biggest killer of women worldwide. Um, we really need to keep women moving, managing their stress well, and really embracing good heart health. Because for a lot of women, because we have different signs and symptoms of a heart attack, um, the first sign and symptom is often death of a heart attack in women. Um, it doesn't behave the same way as a male heart attack. And so if we're talking about prevention and knowing that there's a specific age group of women that we really need to focus on sleep, nutrition, and exercise, and within the nutrition realm, addressing constipation. Um, <laughs> do you prioritize any of those? Like, obviously, they're all the most important, but can you go through kind yeah. of a couple of those or all of them? <laughs> I think, I really think movement is probably the most important because movement is going to tie into stress management, which is important for heart health. Movement, um, particularly if you're ex exercising outside in the morning, you know, that it's sunlight exposure to the suprachiasmatic nucleus at the back of your retinas, that's going to help reset your circadian rhythms, so that'll improve your sleep. It's going to prevent sarcopenia, which is unfortunately very common in women in their 60s. Um, and that's and the loss of muscle mass. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's also, you know, one of the key indicators of good cardiovascular health. But we know from the research out there that exercise can be one of the most important modifiers for making other good health related quality of life choices. So if you're exercising, you're more likely to make better food choices. You're more likely to stop smoking, you know, because for a lot of women, they don't want to waste the effort, you know, of, of the exercise. So for me, movement is the foundation, I think, for all those other steps um, and all those other menopausal health um, issues that we need to consider. So what is your best advice to get people moving? Because we know that a big, when people are already active and they've, they've got a routine, it's relatively easy to modify things if you need to and keep them active and healthy. But the larger proportion of women who aren't doing anything or who've fallen yeah. off the wagon and are really struggling to get back on, how do we, yeah. how do we get them into a routine? How do like, you know, what's the best thing to start with? Yeah, I, I think, you know, kind of what we've done in the past has not worked. You know, you, you have to exercise at menopause because you might have a hip fracture in 20 years or you might have a heart attack, you know. 
that doesn't really work because people don't like to think of themselves as old ladies, you know? So I think um, what I've been finding is talking to women about exercise as a, a, manage, a stress management tool, you know, to improve your sleep. We know that exercise improves your uh, thermal regulators as well. So it can be a good strategy for getting those hot flashes under control as well. Walking is probably one of the easiest, best ways. You know, it's obviously hugely beneficial for, for back pain and issues like that as well. You're going to get some cardio in there too. It'd be fabulous if we could get walking and strength training going as well. And then, you know, if we're being really aiming for the stars here, walking, strength training, particularly lower limb strength training, that's been shown to be beneficial for brain health. Um, I would love to see some flexibility work going on there too, because trunk uh, flexibility, there was one study that I came across that showed that trunk flexibility can be uh, an indicator of arterial stiffness. So that would be lovely. And I also think some restorative exercise as well. So that could be doing some mindful breathing. It could be going to a restorative yoga class. It could be just taking the time to sit down and, you know, relax. Um, my family know when I have not been doing enough restorative yoga um, because there's a pose in yoga called Shavasana, you know, corpse pose, where you just kind of, you go, you lie down, and I like to have a little bolster under the back of my knees and the eye pillow on. When I start getting ratty, hard as that is to imagine, you know, um, the certain people that I live with will just turn and say, you know, you just need to go and shavas yourself, you know, and just kind of get that stress response back under control again. Because if we are constantly revving the stress engines, we are producing more cortisol and that actually drives weight gain around the center of our body. Cortisol is linked to belly fat. And it's really, you know, you have to pick something that's going to resonate with the woman in front of you. What's her biggest problem at the moment? Can we come up with an exercise strategy that is specifically going to target those symptoms, whether it's back pain, pelvic health, weight gain, stress management? If you know what her drivers are, then we come up with a tailored solution for her. And then we we remove the barriers to her performing that exercise on a daily basis because consistency is queen. Walking is outdoors. It's easy. Yeah. It's free. You can do it with people or by yourself. You can do it anytime. Um, how do you increase the intensity of that when you know that we also need to increase? Because, you know, 150 plus minutes of moderate intensity physical activity. And I think for a lot of women who do nothing, just going for mm. a walk is better than nothing. But yes, at mm -hmm. some point when they need to increase their intensity, do you just have them walk faster? Yeah, so I think some of the research around HIIT training um, becomes really interesting to a lot of women. I mean, there was uh, there was some research that came out a couple of weeks ago showing that for people with chronic pain, a brisk 20-minute walk uh, five to seven times a week is beneficial. Um, if they're walking for weight management or for stress management, to, to maybe discuss with them, meeting them where they are, you know, in terms of health literacy, but talking to them about how a 20 minute walk kind of walking fast for 30 seconds and then backing off. So you're increasing the intensity and you're backing off. You should be pushing yourself hard enough that you can still talk, but you're not able to sing. 
And that's going to be, you know, a different reflection. So it's kind of almost like using the Borg rate of perceived exertion, you know, to gauge how hard you're actually working. Because if you've been very sedentary for a long time, what gets what gets that woman out of breath is not going to be the same for somebody like you, Laurie, who's exercising at a really high level consistently. It would take far more to get you out of breath. But to, to quote Pema Children, you, know, you start where you are. You know, you define the goals. Why are you doing this? Um, and then you, you, you measure your progress, because I really believe that what you measure improves and to have some sort of accountability, whether that's going with a walking buddy and you have that other person to meet with and they kind of keep you going when you're feeling kind of meh um, or vice versa. Or you just start tracking your progress as well. And they say it takes, what, three weeks to build a habit. It takes, I think, two or three weeks to actually start feeling the benefit of it as well physically, but mentally when you are actually just being responsible to yourself and prioritizing self-care, which is really, really hard for a lot of women because we're all busy. You know, we all have lives and things going on there. But when you start to see yourself showing up for yourself um, and making that commitment to self-care and you start feeling the benefits, those ripples, I think for me, that's the biggest compliance motivator as well. Um, so you have to be there. You have to pay attention. It takes about two to three weeks, I think, for those benefits to really start kicking in. But um, I think a lot of women find that once they start being consistent with some movement, the physical and the mental benefits are often what keep them going and then help them progress onto the next level. And what else can I do as well to get even more benefits from it? Because, like I said, the threat of a, of a hip fracture in the future, it's not sexy. You know, it's not going to lure people to exercise. So we want to focus on immediate short term benefits rather than the long term benefits that will accrue over the next 10, 20, 30 years. And just on the note with exercise, um, obviously doing something with pelvic floor muscles. Of course, <laughs> the center of the universe. And um, I think, you know, we have to be aware that um, I think it was Delancey who published that research a couple of years ago that after the age of 35, you lose 2% of your striated urethral sphincter every year. You know, yay, on yay. But what we also know, there's other research showing that if you've got good glutes particularly and good deep hip rotators, they can be really supportive for the pelvic floor. So I think kind of taking this multi-pronged approach to good pelvic health, are you not exercising because you're worried about leakage? First of all, let's, let's acknowledge that that's, that's the, one of your barriers. Is it a coordination issue? Is it a de-estrogenization issue? Let's deal with that. Let's work on some coordination. If necessary, let's work on some strength training. And you did a fabulous uh, podcast with Fiona Rogers about the judicious use of vaginal weights. So, you know, they're striated muscles. We need to build them up as well. But this is where I think we have to look beyond just doing close and lift and relax, close and lift and relax. We need endurance. We need strength. We need coordination. But we do need better glutes. You know, the glutes are big, strong muscles. Um, and I don't believe in gluteal amnesia or, you know, some of the other things that are out there. But what I do believe is that we spend too much time sitting on them and not enough time actually using them. 
And, you know, we see that probably all the time in women who are, you know, taking a deep breath and pushing down on the arms of the chair to go from sit to stand, you know, and how many times do we do that during the day? Um, and I think it was Yamasoto a couple of years ago, looking at activity restrictions after gynae surgery, showed that going from sit to stand, you know, or coughing or sneezing provides more of an increase in intra-abdominal pressure than lifting a 20 pounds weight. So teaching women just even how to go from sit to stand, how to coordinate, how if they're leaking when they're running, maybe we need to look at their thoracic mobility. Maybe we need to change stride length. We never want to tell women to stop exercising. But I think what we have to do is use our expertise to tailor the exercise so that they can continue to do it without being provocative um, at this life stage. And what do we need to do to add in to to get get you back exercising enjoyably? again without the fear of pain or of leakage or of prolapse so again i think acknowledging that there are changes and some of it is aging some of it is menopause and how do you separate the two but we know that exercise really just seems to be this magic pill for all of these issues whether we're talking as i said heart health bone health but metabolic health weight gain mental health stress anxiety depression they're all super responsive to those lifestyle choices movement, nutrition, stress management and sleep. Those are the foundations, I think, for having a good menopausal transition and living well, I would say actually before, during and after menopause. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, have you found anything specific that helps women with adherence to their exercise program? Like, yes, a lot of women will start doing it and they feel good and they want to keep doing it or they find a community um, but, you know, we see a lot of women in physio who will come and when we follow them up on a regular, semi-regular basis, I find that helps with adherence. But there's still a lot of women who say you see them, you're going to review them in one or two months. Um, mm. They were really good the week after they saw you. And then it's like flossing before you go to the dentist. You do it a few times <laughs> before the next visit, but nothing yeah. in between. So we know all of this. We educate them creating programs is there anything specific that might help with them to adhere to all of this i think for um well we know that exercising in a group setting has been shown to have better adherence and compliance with with an exercise structure they have to enjoy it first of all and they have to be able to do it without fear of pain or leakage um i have found that for a lot of women when they get into their 40s um, and particularly once they realize they are in that menopausal zone, um, it's almost like a switch gets flipped. And they realize that, you know what, we're halfway through and no one here gets out alive and nobody else is going to take you. So I think our job is really about emphasizing the need for, for prioritizing self-care. And the message really is that you as a woman, you're not doing this for my benefit as a physio or a fit pro or, or another healthcare professional. You're doing it for your benefit. And have I failed in, you know, my ability to explain the benefits and the reasons why you need to do it? Or do you need to look at why you are not prioritizing taking care of yourself? And sometimes it's about framing it that if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of anyone, anyone else. Sometimes it will be, I haven't got time. You set the alarm, 
little bit earlier in the morning. If it's important to you, you will make the time to do it. You will show up for yourself. I think having things like an app or, you know, a paper journal where you are tracking how much and how often you're doing it. But, you know, when I was a baby physio 150 years ago, I would get really bent out of shape when people would not do their home exercise program. It's like, but why? Why won't you do it? And then, you know, I just I came to that realization that they're not doing it for my benefit. It's for their benefit. Have I explained it well enough? Have I removed the barriers? Have have I helped her see that this is now an essential part of self-care? Yes, in terms of preventing the medium to long term issues that we face at menopause, but also in terms of the short term gains that she will enjoy um, physically, obviously, but mentally in terms of that knowledge that you are prioritizing taking care of yourself. And is it because you don't like that particular exercise? You know, can we find something else that you actually enjoy doing? Can we remove the barriers? Can we set you up for success? I am the mother of a teenager, so I am all about removing the excuses so that compliance is really the only logical path forward. But at the end of the day, I can't do it for you. I can only explain why I think it would be really, really good for you to do this for yourself. You talked about bone density and issues surrounding bone density in menopause. Um, is walking yes. enough to help with that or? No, it's, you know, bones are living tissues and they need to respond to a little bit of stress. So maybe if you are hiking uphill at a pretty decent clip, that's going to trigger a little bit of, you know, remodeling around the, the neck of the femur. It's going to get good glute activation. It's going to be great for your, you know, for your pelvic health, for your cardiorespiratory health. For bone density, probably not so much. We are looking at um, eating well, taking in all those essential nutrients, making sure we've got good gut health. So we're absorbing those nutrients and then pooping out what we don't need. But I think the all the evidence really seems to point to strength training um, as being really a driver of good bone health in middle and later life. Now, there are some studies out there that show that you don't have to lift heavy. If you lift light weights, but you do more reps, that's an effective strategy. Um, but there, you know, the lift more trial that came out a couple of years ago, actually lifting heavy um, one of the most exciting things that I think that came out of that study where they were lifting, I think, about 80 percent of one RM. Um, they not only showed really nice improvements in their bone quality and in cortical thickness uh, around the neck of the femur particularly, but they actually got taller. And uh, when they measured these, I know when they measured these women at the end of the study, there was an actual increase in height and. It was a really exciting outcome for a study because the issue with a lot of the pharmaceutical options from a bone health perspective is that you can only take them for five to seven years before the risks start outweighing the benefits. And you should only take them if you already have an established diagnosis of osteoporosis. So they were prescribed for quite a while as preventatives. Um, and what was happening was women were taking them for long periods of time and we're ending up with non-traumatic, spontaneous mid-shaft femoral fractures when they were walking. So the pharmaceutical options are really not going to be enough. We've got to get strong, but we need some flexibility in those bones as well. 
Um, as I said, eating well, managing your stress. There's some new research coming out about the role of osteocalcin in the stress management uh, response. So we're starting to see now that it's not so much adrenaline driven, that it's actually osteocalcin. Are we diverting osteoblast, those building blocks of bones, are we diverting osteoblast energy into providing osteocalcin to manage our stress response versus letting them focus on bone building? So that's an emerging area of research as well. So exercise, exercising, whether it's low weights, high reps, high weights, low reps, bit of flexibility training, eating well, sleeping well, managing your stress well, it's not just one thing that's going to feed into good bone health. But it's also really important that we do point out that, you know, one in five women will probably sustain an osteoporotic fracture in her lifetime. And 20% of women in their 60s who sustain a hip fracture, a neck of a femur fracture, are dead within the first 12 months afterwards. You know, whether it's a DVT or pneumonia or other issues like that. So although we might not like to think of ourselves as osteoporotic old ladies, we're starting to see a worrying decline in the um, bone health of younger women coming through. Um, Fitzgerald presented a paper, I think, at AUGS a couple of years ago, looking at triathletes aged between 35 to 44 who were training three times a week. And about a third of them still had eating disorders carried over from their, their younger athlete days. They were still struggling with that energy availability. And about a third of them, I think it was actually it was about 25 to 28 percent of them also had decreased bone density. Now, they were running and cycling and swimming three times a week. They were competing at a pretty high level, but they were between the ages of 35 to 44, and they were already showing signs of being in trouble in terms of bone quality. So if you're working with women who've maybe had careers as elite athletes when they were younger, you know, screening for red S, this uh, relative energy deficiency in sports syndrome, um, I think is really important that we don't just look at the under exercisers, but we maybe look at the people who've been over exercisers in the past as well. Because if your brain has to choose between ovulating, producing estrogen, laying down healthy bone for the future or survival, it's never going to prioritize reproductive health. So it's a whole lifespan that we need. It's never too early or too late to start thinking about bone health, basically. And all those choices um, really do matter, uh, particularly as we get older. I feel like you really want to talk about poo. So can we talk about poo a little bit more? <laughs> I would love poo. <laughs> so you keep mentioning that nutrition is important and gut health is important at constipation and pooping is important. Um, so what can we do or start to do to help people, well, people who are listening, but also our patients within this period of time? Like why, why you said that nutrition is important during this period of time because it helps with all these other systems. Is there anything specific that women going through this period of time should be avoiding or making sure they're getting? Yes. So um, the reason that I'm so obsessed with constipation, basically at all life stages, but particularly at menopause, is that if we think about a lot of the the symptoms and the signs of menopause that cause a lot of bother for women, the hot flashes, the mood swings, um, the central weight gain. 
a lot of those are actually tied to estrogen dominance. So as we're transitioning into this perimenopause, menopause stage of life, both estrogen and progesterone start to, their levels start to go down. But what can happen is particularly if you're constipated and particularly if you're not good at managing your stress is that progesterone drops faster. So both of those are going down, but you're left with a relative excess of estrogen compared to your available progesterone. And that's important because estrogen, of course, is not just one, one particular compound. There's lots of different estrogens available to us. But if we have too much estrogen, particularly produced from belly fat, um, that's actually can be quite a toxic form of estrogen, can be a driver for hormonally driven cancers. So how do we get rid of this excess estrogen that could be causing these menopausal symptoms and could have a more sinister um, approach as well? The way your body gets rid of estrogen is through your gut. So your, your liver is really this hormonal clearing powerhouse. So it processes the estrogen and um, this whole process called glucuronidation. And it, it then sends most of this processed estrogen into the digestive system to be pooped out. Some of it goes into the, you know, into the urinary system and exits via the blood, but most of it's going out through the bowel. Now, if you're not, if you're constipated and you're not having these lovely, happy, healthy type four stools, then what's happening is that excess estrogen is sitting in your, in your colon, in your sigmoid colon particularly. And if it's left sitting there for any length of time, that estrogen gets reabsorbed back into the system. And then we have to work on getting rid of it all over again. Also, if you're constipated, you know, the implications for bladder frequency urgency, you know, we know that constipation is a big driver of that. We know that constipation can be a driver for back pain in women. And we know that as well that if you're straining to have a bowel movement, um, that's going to, you know, be kind of a risky behavior strategy in terms of pelvic organ prolapse because you're straining downwards all the time. So for all those reasons, constipation management is absolutely vital when it comes to good menopausal health, keeping your hormones happy, um, stopping that recirculation of estrogen um, and then dealing with the with the back pain and the pelvic health issues. Stress management is going to play a role, obviously, in constipation. We know that stress and IBS are really strongly linked and we see a rise in irritable bowel syndrome in women at perimenopause probably due to estrogen dominance as well. We used to think it was progesterone, but actually now the research is saying it's probably due to estrogen dominance. If you're estrogen dominant, you're more likely to have disruptions to your insulin sensitivity as well, which means that you could potentially be on that path down towards type 2 diabetes and all the issues that, that are associated with that. Um, we now know that you know issues like Alzheimer's and dementia, we're now calling those type 3 diabetes. So making sure, yes, we're eating well, we're drinking plenty of water, you know, we're, we're moving. We know that movement, like a 20 minute walk a day has been shown to be beneficial for constipation. Um, doing some Iyengar yoga type twists, also very beneficial for constipation. Making sure you've got good thoracic mobility is important. And um, the two big drivers, of course, are, of constipation are slow transit through the gut and then pelvic floor dyssynergia. And there was a case study that came out a couple of years ago by Binford, 
that showed that actually if you deal with the pelvic floor dysenergy, if you reestablish good pelvic floor coordination, not only are you dealing with the outlet dysfunction, but you're also going to speed up transit through the gut as well. So it is, it's about eating well, it's about absorbing well, moving well, and having the capability to get rid of what you don't need, all those waste products, particularly that excess estrogen that is really only going to cause some mischief in your body. So yeah. constipation is the answer. Of course it is. But you, <laughs> there's a little issue here because you mentioned how things are processed through the liver. Yeah. And then you also talked about stress management. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like alcohol fits well in there, but I feel like <laughs> this is where, you know, I, I haven't reached that stage, but I can see my kid's age now and yeah. some of the stress I'm dealing with and that when I'm approaching that age, what yeah. age my kids will be at that time. And my plan is to drink more than what I drink now. <laughs> and you're telling me this may not be a good strategy. That this, this may not be the best <laughs> strategy, Laurie, because your liver recognizes alcohol as a toxin. So your liver is always going to prioritize processing alcohol, antibiotics, steroids, you know, medications over its ability to get rid of excess estrogen. Um, we also alcohol intake is one of the easiest modifiable factors we can give ourselves as a gift of good menopausal health. Because women process alcohol differently as we get older, you know, it's just absorbed a little bit faster into our bloodstream. So we find that less alcohol affects us more as we get older as well but it's really disruptive for your sleep. And so many women who are very stressed are having the glass or two of wine in the evening to unwind as a reward or the gin and tonic. And then what's happening is you're getting to sleep, but you're not staying asleep. So you're waking up around two or three in the morning. And then are you waking up and having a hot flush and then having difficulty getting back to sleep again? Or you're just not getting that good quality uninterrupted sleep that we know is so important in terms of your glymphatic system in your brain, which is basically what clears out all the junk from your brain while you're sleeping. And we know the disruptions to the glymphatic system, as well as disruptions to the gut, strongly linked with issues like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's as well. So if you're having to have the cup of coffee and something sweet in the morning to get going, and then the glass or two in the evening to wind down, and you're still not sleeping well in the middle of the night, Alcohol is often the low hanging fruit that you can start breaking that cycle with um, and maybe just looking at alternative stress management strategies for dealing with teenagers. All right. Do you need, should you start that as a preventative option earlier? <laughs> <laughs> no, Laurie. I, I would... <laughs> yes, Laurie. <laughs> your, liver, your liver doesn't like alcohol. It doesn't like so, you know, avoiding unnecessary antibiotics will be just as important as well. And um, making sure that if you I'm not going to say never have a glass of wine or a gin and tonic, because first of all, I would just burst into flames if that happened. And um, I'm saying is that you're being conscious, you're having a glass of good wine that you're paying attention to, you're enjoying it and um, every so often have a second or a third one if you like, but not every night. And that you're doing other liver supportive strategies in the meantime. You know, you're not taking unnecessary medication. So 
paracetamol, ibuprofen, steroids, antibiotics. You just take those as you really, really need them. Um, and your liver loves things like dark green leafy vegetables. You know, I think broccoli is the answer to everything anyway. But it's if you are and I want to say good in inverted commas, if you have a liver supportive lifestyle 80% of the time, then you can still have a glass or two of wine, but that you're really paying attention to it and making it count. It's not that you're just unconsciously knocking it back out of habit or routine, that you're maybe looking at other strategies for managing your stress, other strategies for improving your sleep, um, rather than just being on automatic pilot and reaching for the glass at the end of every day. I know that there are some cultures that view this period of life as a coming of age, like this yeah. is, you know, what you look forward to. So how do yeah. we, you know, what, how do we, you know, put it into a positive light and go, okay, Absolutely. these are all the bad things about menopause, but. Yeah, yeah. I think for a lot of women, I, I think first thing we have to acknowledge is that menopause is a relatively new development for us as humans. Because up until about 100 years ago, most women were dead before they hit menopause, mm. you know. Um, so our life expectancy has increased dramatically over the past century. And in fact, I think uh, humans and killer whales are the only species that go through menopause and kind of live beyond their fertility, which I'm sure is no coincidence. But if you look at what happens in killer whales, for example, when a killer whale goes through menopause, Oftentimes, she becomes the leader of the pod and she helps the younger killer whales raise their young and she tells them where to go and, you know, and guides them. And I think for women and for cultures particularly, two things that we see if we look at things from um, an anthropological perspective, in cultures that venerate getting older, we don't see words around hot flashes the, the kind of the corollary to that is in in the West, um, particularly a lot of the research has been done in the US with this, women with higher socioeconomic status fear aging more and tend to have more menopausal symptoms because of that, regardless of whether or not they've had an oophorectomy. So regardless of whether or not they even still have ovaries, that seems to be a bigger driver of symptoms. But also if you look at cultures that have you know, um, that still embrace a very traditional plant-based lifestyle. Um, you know, the, the kind of the, the one that springs to mind is in, in Japan, where they didn't really have words to describe hot flashes. They had a much lower incidence also of things like osteoporosis and of breast cancer. What we see is in Japanese women who start to embrace a Western lifestyle is that the risk and incidence of those issues seems to rise as well. Women are different from men, you know, mm. they're not small men and that menopause is not a disease, but there are certain steps that we have to take. And again, those big rocks, eating well, moving well, sleeping well, managing your stress well, but then being able to tease that out, I think, and understand why. And, mm. you know, I, I try to blog about it fairly regularly and that's free. And if you're interested in taking a deeper dive, obviously the third age course is there. But asking questions and not being satisfied that pain is normal, leaking is normal, feeling crappy isn't normal. Hmm. You know, it's we want to be able to to live long lives, obviously, but we want to be able to live good lives as well and to have a little bit of joy in our life as well. 
and if you feel that menopause or menopausal symptoms are holding you back yeah just to to tend to seek help and start asking questions and to demand better service because um you know it's uh life is for the living and we want yeah. to be sure we're enjoying it oh thank you thank you so much thank you so much for having me Well, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. For those of you who don't know Michelle very well or you haven't heard her speak, that woman can talk and you never want her to stop. And again, she's so generous with her time that we actually, uh, there's a few other things that we talked about that I have put um, some extras into the patron-only episode. So if you're a patron, uh, thank you very much for your support. You will be able to access that soon. If you're not a patron, you can consider joining up as a patron. You have access to extra episodes. I was trying to put an extra episode every fortnight, of opposite to these fortnightly episodes however the last month has been extremely busy and I have fallen behind so I really apologize Um, but the extra episodes are just my way of saying thank you to help support the podcast links are in the show notes you can pledge one or two dollars us per month you can cancel at any time if there's any issues with exchange rates some people have chosen to pledge 25 dollars just once and then they cancel it and i put them into a special dropbox so they still have access to all those patron only episodes Um, if you aren't interested in doing that i would love it if you could subscribe and rate the podcast shared on social media let other people know so that everybody can find it all right have a very good weekend everyone